So um, the title of my sermon today is a, a new command and a new conviction. And so we, we've been talking about the courage of Christ. And so last week we talked a little bit about um, Jesus finding clarity and his mission is calling as he'd been out to the wilderness and he got a cl- crystal clear clarity about what he was called to do. And, and so we're gonna talk a little bit about the word conviction. So um, I, I thought this was interesting as I was kind of um, reflecting upon this in the last, even the last 24 hours. And so, so we got a, a new command and the new command Jesus gives us in the gospel, John, uh, John 13, 34. I give you a brand new command, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So Actually, that goes back, it's a, it's a new command, but it really is an old command because it's 2,000 years old. But I tell you what, when Jesus says it, it's still relevant. relevant. Can I get him in on that? Okay, and so um, what's really, what's very interesting, this old, well, the new command that Jesus gives us goes back to the, another old command, which is actually found in Leviticus. And I know that we don't normally camp in Leviticus, but I thought this is really interesting. The 19th chapter, it says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against another person, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, so saith the Lord. And so there's a connection. Once again, you got a new command that Jesus gives us. Even though it's 2,000 years old, it's still relevant today. So then we have Jesus goes, listen, by the way, I'm going to give you a brand new covenant. So each, you know, each time last week we had uh, Holy Communion and we had it last night. And so when Jesus takes the cup and holds it up, he talks about this is the blood of the new covenant. And the new covenant has everything to do, well, it has to do with the forgiveness of our sins. And that's always relevant. Can I amen on that? Um, we've come here to worship the Lord and to be able to give a testimony of our love and praise for him and that, that he was willing to die upon a cross and he was rede- uh, in order for us to be redeemed and that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that gives us this new covenant Jesus has established for us, has everything to do with the forgiveness of our sins, but also to be able to celebrate salvation. That's always relevant. Not only salvation, but the opportunity to have everlasting life with him. That seems pretty relevant. And so when Jesus says these words, when you think about it, I'm giving you a brand new command, loved just as I have taught you, uh, I taught you how to love, you must do this, exclamation point, don't miss the detail. Okay, and then he gives us this new covenant. Um, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you for a minute, for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this as all you shall drink. So then I started thinking about, okay, so we got a new command, we got a new covenant, and then this idea in my mind we have this, well, can we possibly have a new conviction? I mean, so what's, what? I, I, let me give you a couple of illustrations of that. So sometimes you know how life, you know, evolves and sometimes we, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of us and sometimes God just changes our hearts. And then we were thinking one thing or one way and all of a sudden God says, you know what, maybe, there, maybe your thinking is not really correct. So um, I was thinking about my friend um, Malin Williams. God rest his soul. He died a few years ago. We, I love Malin. And, um, and, and you know what's interesting? Um, you know, we had a, a beautiful memorial service for him. Um, and so he had gone in for some surgery. And um, it was this, actually a relatively simple surgery. And he didn't come out. And so what Malin had this... Um, well, and and we talked and actually talked about this in, in in his memorial service that he was he was prejudiced towards black people. And you know what, God convicted him, and you know what he did? He, he took on, and he was a mentor for one of our kids a few years ago, Mason. Matter of fact, I got a picture of Malin and Mason. This is a picture, this is actually was in the, um, the Daily Sun, it was uh, several years ago. And so there's Malin, and Mason's playing basketball. And, they, and you know what's interesting about that is that 
Somehow God convicted him and changed his heart. And you know what's very powerful, when the family was all sitting up here for, uh, for Malin's memorial service, guess he was sitting up here right with the rest of the family? Mason. So somehow in the midst of all that, God got a hold of Malin and he changed his heart and convicted him. He says, Malin, this is not the way you should be thinking. You need to adjust your, your perspective about human, human beings and about humanity. And so I, I love that testimony. I think it's a great testimony about how sometimes God can just convict us. I'll give you another one, my own personal journey about life. <laughs> this is kind of funny. So my son Luke texted me this last week or this week, and he says, Dad, you're not going to believe it. I got a brand new, brand new tattoo. I'm thinking, oh, great. This is good. And so, um, so my kids, you know, my kids, I've got five kids, four out of the five, all love tattoos. And so Luke got a brand new one. And what's very interesting is, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I thought, well, you know, with some way got a tattoo, it was like a really big deal, right? And he's like, and so somehow when I, my thinking, you know, when you got a tattoo, somehow is directed towards uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and somehow you're like a, a, a biker, and you're at a bar, and, and all this is going on, right? So this is how my mind is associated with tattoos. And so you know what's interesting? I realize that maybe tattoos are really not that big a deal, because my family's full of them right now, okay? <laughs> and so this is just life, isn't it? That sometimes that God works in our hearts and he gives us this kind of, well, he's given us a new command to love one another just as I have taught you to love. He's given us a brand new covenant and has everything to do with forgiveness, salvation, eternal life. And then I really believe that God continues to work on us if we allow him and we're willing to listen to him. And I would call this a new conviction. So last week, you know, I shared with you all this definition of courage because this is what we're going to get at today because I, I guarantee you, when you look at the bigger picture here and when Jesus, and you put the connection, connect all the dots, Jesus, not only did he have clarity when he went out to the wilderness and he spent 40 days and 40 nights and he, after that, he, he was crystal clear about his mission and calling. But it, it took a whole lot of courage for him to move forward with what he was, well, actually what he was convicted to do. And so um, I love this, once again, this definition of courage, the ability to do something that really frightens you. And so, you know, I'm, by the way, I mentioned this last week, and Tom Berlin is, we're kind of following his book about courage. And I agree with Tom. I think that Jesus Christ is the most courageous person I've ever, I've, I've ever experienced. I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that. I, I think you think about, you put it in perspective, and you think about how, how Jesus could, could take on the religious establishment and, and said that there's a better way of love rather than just the law. He, he called the Jewish religious officials out and called them hypocrites, which we heard just a few minutes ago. He cleared the house with the money changers in his father's house. He calmed seas. Uh, he stood toe-to-toe to Pilate. Um, and you, know, you think about this, and you think about Jesus is even able to heal on the Sabbath, and so I, okay, so I thought, and once again, I, last week I shared with you, courage, courageous decisions in life are rooted in clarity. Clarity brings forth courage, and then clarity helps sustain courage over time. And this is what we learned a little bit last week. And then I also shared with you all, when, when you looked at the three temptations that Jesus had when he was in the wilderness, they were kind of like, no, maybe there were no brainers to Jesus. Because once again, the great thing about knowing what you are all about is that, is that you also realize what you're not about. And Jesus knew exactly what he was about. And Jesus knew what he was not about. 
So when the temptations came rolling in, he knew exactly he wasn't going to go there. Jesus. So I started to think about this, this idea of convictions. And so I, I did a little detective work this week and I, I actually did, I, I love these quotes because I love reading history and I love, uh, I love quotes. So Abraham Lincoln said this. He says, you know, I, I've been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that all about me seem insufficient for that day. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I would rather be a man of conviction than a man of conformity. Winston Churchill said, one man with conviction will overwhelm 100 who have only opinions. So when I think about the idea of what we're, here we are in our global crisis with what's going on with the Ukraine, people is, you know what, I'm watching this news and I'm thinking, man, they've got some serious conviction because you know what? They want to be free. And by golly, they're going to fight for it. And it's the same idea that, you know, when we went through the American Revolution back in the 1700s, we didn't want to be under the, the Americans did not want to be under the thumb of the British. Well, the Ukraine people don't want to be under the thumb of the Russians. So they're fighting for the same thing that we fought for back in the 1700s. They just want, they have this conviction uh, to be free. I was thinking about, you know, I mentioned last week, I think about my friend, Mike Williams. He had a conviction because he went down the Dominican Republic and he saw the kids eating out of the garbage heap. And he says, you know what? I could do something about that. So he does Christian comedy and he raises money to be able to help support a mission so the children in the Dominican Republic don't have to go to the garbage heap to be able to eat food from their garbage. So he provides food for them. Can you imagine that? That, that to me is conviction. My friend Greg Savitt's gonna be here Tuesday night. I hope you'll come. I guarantee you, you'll be, you'll be uh, inspired and I hope that you'll learn something because he's gonna be teaching us about the seven last days of Jesus' life. And I guarantee you, there's that, uh, he's amazing. But you know, he, he had this calling. You know, he was a Jewish person. He was raised in a Jewish family, had no clue. He, the only thing he knew about was the Old Testament. He said, I didn't even know there was a New Testament. No one ever told me anything about Jesus. I mean, I, I thought that Jesus was just, you know, I wasn't even sure about it. I was, I was kind of scared about Jesus. And so now he has got this conviction that he goes from all over the country and he tells people, especially our Jewish brothers and sisters, that there is a Jesus Christ. And by the way, he is the Messiah. We don't have to wait anymore. He's already come and gone. I mean, he's come and gone. He continues to exist in an everlasting life. By the way, he came 2,000 years ago. That's what I call Conviction. My friend Posey back here is in the choir and I, when she was volunteering in their church office this last week and she says, you know, Pastor Hope, my, your friend Derek um, uh, sends regards. And I think, Derek, who's Derek? And she says, well, you know, he's that, that preacher. He, you know, lived in your neighborhood. He, and, um, and I said, oh, okay, I know Derek. And what's interesting about Derek, he did live in my neighborhood. He just moved away, but he's this, uh, he has this fairly small church in our community. He's building actually another church down near St. Vincent de Paul. And so, so Derek is, got this conviction and he's got a lawnmower business on the side and so he hires people who are in some kind of recovery program. That's who he hires to help him in order to kind of help them up. And so when Posey read about Derek and his vision to help people who are in recovery, she says, I wanna hire that guy. And I said, Posey, you, you know, I was writing my sermon, I said, you had a conviction to do that. I think about my, my son Luke. By the way, did I mention he's got a lot of tattoos? And so my son Luke has a conviction to help 
people who are veterans. He works in, a, in the VA hospital, which was, I think it's the second oldest uh, VA hospital in America. And he works in, the, in this, um, the psychological unit. Many of our veterans are dealing with post-traumatic syndrome. And he's got a conviction to help our veterans. My, my daughter, I mentioned her last week, she has a conviction to help children who have been abused and have a special need. Conviction. What is your conviction in life? Um, I, I emailed, I called my mother yesterday and I, I told my mother I was gonna, she's here today and I, I was gonna mention my grandfather, Dr. G.R. Tomlin. I, I love my grandfather. I have a whole lot more respect for my grandfather now um, being in the ministry for 32 years. My grandfather, when he died, he was, had been in the ministry for over 70 something years. And so here's interesting. Let me just tell you a quick little story about, matter of fact, I got a picture of my grandfather. And so there's my, my grandfather in the early, early 1900s. And so um, I thought it was very interesting when I was thinking about um, this, that my, my grandfather um, was raised in a time in which he was literally a circuit rider. And, um, and so um, my, my mother called my aunt up and got a few details that I didn't even know about my grandfather over the last 25 hours. So she sent a, actually sent me a little email and she says, you know, my, my grandfather actually was, uh, came into the Florida, or to the Kentucky Conference in 1920. He was called to the age of 17. Um, he was raised obviously during the depression. Um, and so he was, when he, when he died, he was the oldest um, living uh, clergy person in the Kentucky Conference. He died at 88. In other words, he was the last guy standing. He had outlived all his friends. And so, but he had, let me tell you something. My, my grandfather had a conviction because he was called to ministry to, in the hills of Kentucky. And so this is what I got last night. So when he first started preaching, he had a five-point circuit, okay, which he rode around on a mule. The circuit was in eastern Kentucky and a very rough country and rough people. People swore he rode from place to place with his feet frozen in the stirrups. He he roomed over a bar and sometimes carried a gun. He saved enough money in his first year to buy, uh, actually buy a horse. He almost died from pneumonia, which he got after baptizing someone in the river. The bartender took care of him until family could get him, and the bartender saved his life. People today really can't imagine what life was life back then. My my grandfather at the age of 17 was called to be a United Methodist pastor, and he is convicted so when I interviewed my grandfather back in 1986, when I had, so my grandfather, get this, this is ready, right? So my grandfather is in a, uh, um, he was in an assisted living facility. And one of the things I had to do when I got called in the ministry, I had to interview an elder. And so I've been at this, okay, so I've been called in the ministry for three weeks. He's been in it for 72 years, okay? And so my, the first question was this, what are your primary duties as a pastor. Okay, so I actually had the original document that I, when I was writing down my notes back in, um, on August 14th, 1986, it was 120. I asked him that question. 
And so this is what my grandfather's response was. Okay, so here's, here's what I'm thinking. Okay, it's to be able to preach, you know, most important, to preach well, vision cast, you know, um, administration, do all these things. No, no. This is what my grandfather says to me. He says, Harold Ray, the most important thing that you should do is to lead people to Jesus Christ. Exclamation point. Don't miss the detail. Now, why would he say that to me? I mean, he's been at this for like 73 years, but I met for three weeks, right? And so somehow he knew something that I didn't know. But I, he did teach me something that I will never forget on that day. He taught me something about a conviction and being really clear about your conviction in life. So let me ask you something. What's your conviction? What are you convicted to do and to put into action? So we, I look at this story today, and I think it's just amazing. I, I, I love this idea that um, in life about this idea of conviction and, and kind of just well, putting it in perspective. And I, you know, I thought this is actually a very, it's a tragic story. Um, this week I saw it on the news, and it was a story about a, um, a goalie. Uh, her name is Katie Meyer. Matter of fact, I got a picture of Katie Meyer here. Katie was one of the, um, she worked at Stanford University, and um, she's one of the best goalies in America. And she took her own life this last week. She had her whole life ahead of her. And so then, then so it was on the, um, the news. And so here's the next picture. Let me show you. This is a picture of her mother and her father. And they're just were speaking out because um, they wanted um, for other people to be aware of the signs and the potential of what could happen with your child that you think that everything's fine and everything's really not fine. So out of this raw emotion, they get on the national television and they're, they're talking about their daughter committing suicide that they thought everything's okay, but it, everything was not okay. Matter of fact, if you could put that, yeah, there's that picture. So um, Katie's mother is wearing a Stanford sweatshirt. It was her daughter's. And she says, I know this sounds, well, it's just a mother thing. She says, I'm wearing my daughter's sweatshirt because it smells like her. So what's your conviction? So Jesus, so here let me just teach for a second. So Jesus, Jesus comes and so he um, has, he has gone from being in the wilderness and then he goes down to his own hometown to Nazareth and they hand him the scroll as I shared with you all last week. He opens the scroll to the book of Isaiah and this is what he reads. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Don't miss the detail. Because of he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and to recover the sight of the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Rolls it all up. Then he sits down. This is such a classic Jesus. And then he says, and by the way, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. And then you know what the response is? They wanted to kill him. Throw him off a cliff. And so then he escapes. And where does he go? He goes down to the Sea of Galilee. And so what's very interesting is if you, if you go back and look at the story. So Jesus is in a synagogue and he's teaching on this particular day. And so... When he, when he goes in, he's, um, uh, I suppose he's teaching. 
Um, he gets, he has gotten their people's attention. And so this woman comes in, and so Luke um, uses this as a great example. By the way, um, Luke likes to compare things. So Luke is comparing this story, Jesus healing this woman who has been hunched over for 18 years. And he also, later on in the Gospel of Luke, he compares that story to a man who is suffering with dropsy, which is like anema, which is, he's got all this fluid on his body. So he heals him too. So you have these two stories. By the way, what's interesting, um, if you listen closely to the children reading, she's, Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham. Guess who he also calls, a, well, he calls him a son of Abraham? Zacchaeus. There's this comparison to stories. Uh, there's this point in which she, she's been humped over for 18 years. That's an interesting detail, isn't it? Um, some scholars think that there's a comparison that Jesus put that in there, that she's been humped over for eight years. Luke put that in there uh, because the, there were those who had actually were died at the, um, at the Tower of Siloam had fallen. And so there's this comparison between the 18 years and those who had fallen we have that. And, and so what Luke was trying to make sure that we all understand in, in teaching this story and Jesus using this story is that he wanted to lift up women. This is important to Jesus. So he heals this woman on the Sabbath. And, and what's very also very intriguing to me is that you kind of think about all the different dynamics that are happening in this story so the woman comes, and can you imagine, she's, you know, she's been humped over with this scoliosis, her spine's all bent over, and she's been looking down for 18 years. That's a long time to go through suffering. And so what's very powerful to me is that this story connects with the clarity that Jesus had when he opens up the scrolls and reads to his brothers there in the synagogue. What did Jesus say that he was going to do? He said this. He says, uh, by the way, this is what I'm going to proclaim the release to the captives and let the oppressed go free. How many years has this woman been humped over? Like this. I would say that that would fall under the definition of someone who needed to be set free. I would say, venture to say, that that's someone who seems to be, needs to be released. So Jesus goes and does this amazing thing. Well, it was amazing to the woman who's been humped over for 18 years. It wasn't so amazing to the, well, the leaders of the synagogue. He says to her, woman, be healed. And he reaches out and touches her, which there's an interesting dynamic when Jesus touches someone and back then when you were healed, it has to do with the blessing. So this is an affirmation, the blessing that the woman is receiving from Jesus when he lays hands on her. And so she rejoices. And evidently the other people there were rejoicing. The only people who were not rejoicing were the, well, the leaders of the synagogue. They weren't so happy. You know, what's very interesting, and what's, here, here's, you know, here's the amazing thing. This is such a classic Jesus, is this, is that, well, you know, Jesus has this unbel unbelievable, uncanny way to take things and flip them and reverse them. Like, for example, he shares with us, the first shall be last and the last should be first. Can you amen on that? Okay, so what Jesus is doing here, all of a sudden, the woman, he, she comes and she's been afflicted for 18 years. So there's all this shame on her life. So Jesus all of a sudden, in rever here's the re great reversal. 
So all of a sudden, she is not shamed anymore. She's given victory. Okay, so what's interesting, if you look at the dynamics here, the, the Sadducees here, the Pharisees, the leaders of this temple come, and they're in the, and all of a sudden, they think that they have it all together. They're victorious because they have the law, but then all of a sudden, the amazing thing is, they end up being shamed at the very end of the story. So there's this great reversal in this story about Jesus coming and setting this woman free from her affliction, and she doesn't have to be shamed anymore, and there's victory in what she finds in life, but then all of a sudden, the ones who are, think that they have all the victory, they end up shamed, being shamed themselves. The great reversal. Jesus is always flipping things around. And so what I think it's very powerful when we, when we look at the story is that, you know, Jesus has got this great conviction. So once again, I think that the people all came that day um, thinking that, you know, it's just church. Just come to church. Nothing new is going to happen. And what I call this, and I think this, this is a really good point. If you don't hear anything in my message today, this is really, really important. Is I think that I call this, the, there's the courage arises from the conviction of caring for others. Can we amen on that? Number two is courage arises from the conviction of expectation. Okay, so here's a little thought. Expecting that God might change something in me takes courage to change. It takes courage to stop drinking. It takes courage to pick up the phone and ask for forgiveness. It takes courage to admit that you're wrong, especially to your wife. <laughs> so so here, here's, here's oh, right, ready? I think maybe the woman came that day after 18 years, each time she went to the synagogue, maybe she was just a coming, the sense of expectation that God would heal her and restore her. And they're the Pharisees, and they come, and they continue to expect to do the exact same thing, and everybody needs to stay in their lane. So when Jesus doesn't stay in his own lane, and he heals on the Sabbath, I mean, isn't it, I love this, this is so classic Jesus, and Tom Berlin mentions this. He says, you ever been in that one of those things when you felt convicted that you're supposed to do something or say something, and you know that you're probably, you have to take a deep breath before you say it or you do it because you just feel like you gotta do it, and you know, man, you know it's gonna get you in big trouble and there's gonna be fallout, but you're gonna say it anyway. Jesus does it anyway. Now that takes courage. And so what's very powerful when you put it in perspective how Jesus takes this and he calls them all hypocrites, exclamation point. And so here's what I want us to get today. You ready? This is really, really important. I think that when we come to worship, I think that we should come with a sense of expectation. I think that we should come to church believing that this, because that, by the way, this is a mini Easter today. Easter's coming but let me tell you something, every single Sunday morning when we come, we should be coming to the expectation and celebration that Jesus Christ died for my sins, that he's forgiven me of my sins, that he has actually died and arose from the grave. And that we should celebrate that. Church should not just be coming with, you know, I'm just going to come, I'm just going to come, I'm just going to come. No, no, no. When we come to church, we should come with a sense of expectation that maybe God may do something significant in my life today. That God might change my life today. That God might breathe a brand new spirit in my life today. 
That's when we should come to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is always relevant. And by the way, it never gets old. So when we come to worship, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, don't miss the detail. We should come with a sense of expectation that God might do something inside of my heart. That he might change me inside my heart. That he might do something dramatic inside my heart. That it might come through a song that Angie sings or something that the choir sings or the liturgy that Alan just gave to us or something that I just read to the children read in today's scripture lesson or something that Pastor Hill might preach with passion in his heart. But when we come to worship, folks, we should come with a sense of expectation and the courage to act on it and to listen to what Christ is trying to tell us. That's my hope for us today. That's what I believe as we walk through Lent today, that we come with a sense of expectation because the gift of the, the death and the resurrection never gets old. It's always relevant. And by the way, it is very authentic because he died for you. Now that's genuine good news for us today. So here, I'll close with this little thought. Um, so I mentioned, you know, a few weeks ago, I was running this, um, I ran this half marathon with my daughter, Olivia. And, and so, you know, a, a few years ago, you all might remember this. It was actually, I think it was about 10 years ago. I, I was running a race and I, I suddenly realized that I made the wrong turn in my marathon and I was running the wrong race. I would highly recommend not to do that, okay? And so when I I've suddenly realized I was no longer, when I got halfway through the mar marathon, um, uh, the guy says, I said, where's the turn? Where do you go to run the rest of the marathon? He says, well, you're done. You just finished. And I said, I'm not done. I'm supposed to run in a marathon. He says, well, you're in the wrong race. What? This is terrible. I was so heartbroken. I mean, I was running the best races I have ever run in a marathon. Blew out right of the water. I mean, I mean, I mean, out of all the stupid things I've done, that's really up there. Would you know that? I said the other day, I'm running in Miami, and we're getting close to, well, downtown. And there's this place. There's a place in which there's like these little signs, and one says full marathon. And then one says, half marathon. And then there's, well, God bless this lady. I don't know who she was. But I really love this lady. You know, there's a lady who's saying, all of you all who are in the full marathon, go to the right. All of you all who are running the half marathon, go to the left. I love that lady. <laughs> and so maybe what we need to be doing and listen to the voice of Almighty God who's trying to lead us home. It takes courage to listen to that voice. Uh, uh, so here's just a, a little chorus. You, you all know the song. It goes something like this. Where he leads me, I will follow. Where he leads me, I will follow. Where he leads me, I will follow. I'll go with him, with him 
all the way. Here's the challenge. To go with him all the way.